Well, I don't drink as much as I used to. Cause lately, it just ain't my style. And the hard times don't hurt like they used to. They pass quickly as when I was a child And somehow I've learned how to listen For a sound like the sun going down The magic the morning is bringing a song for the life that I found It keeps my feet on the ground That was Bill Mentone singing with his wife Robin in the background. In this episode, Bill will share with us some of his life stories from getting kicked out of high school to life after serving in the Vietnam War. This episode is about Bill's perseverance to do what he loves, play music. You're listening to Barely Talks, the podcast about neighbors talking to neighbors. This is Lucia, and I'm sitting here next to Michael and Allison. We're here to distract you from your day-to-day and connect you to the people living in Beverly, Mass. In these times of isolation, we hope everyone is doing okay, and we're bringing you a new episode to entertain you. And we're back, Beverly, 2020. (laughs) (laughs) We were on vacation slash living... Life, Life. taking care of our responsibilities. (laughs) TCB. We're back. Yep. And today we're going to talk about Bill Mentone, who is actually my neighbor. Do you guys know anything about him before I start? I do. He's the guy that plays shows at Chianti, right? Yeah. Like jazz or something like that? Yeah. He is a musician. He plays all kinds of horns, uh, like the clarinet and saxophone. Bill, his wife Robin and two other musicians performed together in a band called Who's Muddy's Shoes. The name of the band is inspired in the song Who's Muddy's Shoes from Elmer James. Like but a yeah. band name with a, with a backstory. Yeah, 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 yeah. During the episode, you will listen to some music between the stories. That music is Bill playing either the clarinet or the saxophone in his house. Bill Mantone didn't have an easy path and his stories have something in common. At some point, Bill stood up for himself, whether that was to protect his own safety or to defend his desire to become a musician. But before we get into what what are those life stories, I just want to give you an idea of what it is like to hang out with them. They're my neighbors, so I I knew they liked um, good food and good booze. So (laughs) I surprised them with uh, Pisco from Peru. Describe it to me. You described it before. Yeah, it's intense. It, It looks like tequila or or vodka because it's transparent, but it's made of grape. And Bill and Robin, every time they try it, they say tastes like grappa, which is like a... Yeah, I've had grappa before. To me, yeah. I don't drink hard alcohol, so it tore me up inside. You know, it's one of those ones that burns. Yeah. Like turpentine. Yeah. People love it. Kind of like after meal little mm-hmm. thing that you can have. So just to give you an idea how, how they are, like we're going to talk about Bill's life. And we're we're going to talk about the, the tough situations that he went through and how he he persevered with playing music. But um, I also wanted to give you an idea of how he's an enjoyable person as well as his wife. 
Let's listen to a short little moment when we were hanging out together. Do you mind if I open this? Yes, of course. I brought it for you. And I, I just bought those glasses from Amazon. I got six. They're so I, pretty. I bought three for you. So you, you try this one, remember, Robin? Yes, I yes, like it very much. Yes. So it comes from grapes. Oh, so if I oh, this was what we thought smelled a lot like grappa. It does. Yeah. Oh, you know what? It smells it, like. It smells just like. Grappa. Oh, it smells a lot like grappa. Oh my god, and I love grappa. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, that's very much like <laughs> grappa. <laughs> but I like it. It feels so clean. No, it's it's clean, and it it just it warms warms the inner just right. So so. Are these glasses special for this potion? Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, so you can have an idea. Just enjoy the moment. Like I, I brought peace girl to like to drink and talk. So they're just a lot of fun. Yeah, he's got a good voice. Yeah, but, and then they're very engaging. Like Bill, he makes fun of himself the whole time, so it's very funny. But well, like I, like I said earlier, like uh, not necessarily everything was fun or great in his life, and he didn't share many details. But he did explain that his dad wasn't the nicest person at home, and because of that, he knew at an early age that he didn't want to be like his dad. And he struggled in general to be a good student, to be, you know, the son that his dad wanted him to be. So in the next clip, we will learn how Bill struggled in his high school years and and how he did his best to try to stay close to music. I was a horrible student in, in public high school. I, I, if I, if I showed up, I had an attitude uh, and I, I, I don't, without without getting into too much detail, I had a terrible altercation with an English teacher, and I won. Uh, yeah, I decked him. I punched him. He was not appropriate. Um, so, uh, um, so I, I hit him, and I thought. And in those days, if you complete, if that happened, no one wanted to hear what, you, what the student had to say. So I was uh, encouraged to seek my education someplace else. Uh, oh. So I, I dropped out for a year, out of high school for a year, and uh, I wound up. Getting into, I heard, I finally got to Cambridge Academy, where I went, where I finished up my last year of high school. So I, um, I paid my own way. It was, it was, it wasn't, it was a private school, so I had to pay tuition. And you paid. I went to work, paid my own tuition. Yeah. Well, I knew enough even then that you know, first of all, it was the height of the Vietnam War. If I didn't get my butt back in the school, then probably the following year, so I would be drafted. But I mean, I think at that point I was paying something like it might have cost me three or four thousand dollars a year. But in the, back in the 60s, that was a crap load of money. And so I, I worked at McLean, and I did gigs, and I, I made enough money. And I didn't sleep a lot. I still don't. Uh, but but um, yeah, so I worked, I worked really, I had to work really hard for a couple of years. That's when I found out that I wasn't stupid. You know, I, mean, I thought I can't learn because, you know, I can't do what the other kids are doing in the public school. But I learned there how, you know, okay, you're, you're at least a reasonably intelligent guy, and you're going to be okay with that. And that's where I, um, you know, I, I started... That's where I learned my math skills. Then I sort of went to Berkeley. It, not, it was then it was Berkeley School of Music. Now it's Berkeley what University or whatever it is. Or, it wasn't Berkeley College for sure. Uh, it was Berkeley School of Music on kind of Boylston, no Newbury and Dartmouth Street, and and and, and Back Bay. And uh, I went there with the idea. Of I, my idea. Well, I was going to I was going to go finish at Berkeley, then run off and star for my art. So uh, I was a composition and arranging. That's what I started out as, and the trouble with a place like Berkeley is I suddenly find myself surrounded by, you know, in the high school I was like one of the good, one of the really really good players, and at Berkeley I was an okay player, but you know, which means I had room to move. It was great, you know, um, 
And so I started hanging out and playing gigs and you know jamming all day, but I didn't go to class. All the all these guys, all, all these young men and women, mostly men at the time, were really really good musicians. But some were just better students than others, and you know, I mean, I, I got some good experiences. I learned I learned I learned a lot. But um, when my draft board found out that my attendance was so horrible, um, they reclassified me from they, they took over my student deferment and turned me one A, which meant next. Do you guys know what that means? Mm-hmm. It's going to be called. Mm-hmm. For the draft. Mm-hmm. Yes. I like hearing stories about people that it sounds like they go with their gut. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, when somebody feels that something is right mm-hmm. and they go for it, I don't mm-hmm. know. Like, mm-hmm. and that kind of carries through with he's more interested in hanging out and like jamming yeah, with other people as opposed mean, to going right? to class. And he's, yeah, the, I, I like hearing stories about people like that because I'm not like that so you know what I mean like, it's admirable it takes I think, courage when, yeah right. it takes courage exactly it takes courage, it takes courage. You, you just yeah you have to be connected to what you want what you think go Bill like yeah, yeah. and it probably he, helps if you have a fair amount of musical talent too well I was gonna say like when you mentioned you know he, um him persevering and not maybe having all the support to like have a career in music mm-hmm. even if you have support it's hard to make a career in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anything artistic Agree. so Agree. to have barriers is it's even more impressive I agree and the interesting part and that's what I, I was amazed at Bill is that he did not have much support early on and we'll get into that but his dad didn't want him to be a musician and I didn't put this part but he worked the way he paid for his prep school uh, was working in the work like playing music he called them gigs yeah. that's why he didn't sleep much yeah. and then during the day he would work restraining patients because he was strong so he would be at hospital back then that's how they deal right, with mental right. illness like there would be a lot of force so that's how he paid as a high school student yeah wow. he could get wow. paid i know it's that's, crazy yeah. first of all that he was out playing gigs too yeah i know it's impressive so as bill mentioned earlier after prep school he was enrolled at berkeley school of music to become a musician but he lost his student permit and was next to be drafted to the Vietnam War. And now, this is interesting. Before he would be drafted, Bill decided to enroll himself in the Navy so that he could have more chances in choosing what kind of job he would do in Vietnam. Oh, wow. Thank God we got rid of that draft. It's like punishing people that, you know, <laughs> are already struggling. Yeah. Yeah, but so the good thing is that, I mean, he could have, I guess, he could have been in way worse positions or in positions that the chances of coming back alive were smaller. But he was able to choose to be a corpsman. By the way, a corpsman is someone who is a medical specialist that gives medical care in the U.S. Navy or Marine Corps. It's interesting. You don't hear a lot of stories of people that like, you know, you hear about people in the 60s avoiding the draft. You don't hear a lot of people talking about their experiences just sort of like accepting it and being like all right right I guess I gotta figure out a way to it. live yeah. through it yeah 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 so then he was like okay I'm gonna be drafted next so I'm gonna enlist in the navy first and and choose this best job that I can think of I wonder how many people did that I've never heard mm. that like like preempting mm-hmm. the draft in a way he's like, smart yeah, yeah. Like, so he enlisted in the navy uh, was able to become a corpsman 
and he was attached to an infantry company in the 1st Marine Division in Vietnam from 1969 to 1970. And when Bill came back, he didn't feel like playing music for a while. Bill didn't play music like for 10 years, and in those 10 years he continued to work in the medical and mental health settings. Um, and before we learn what about Bill's life helped him redirect himself back to playing music, let's listen to one story uh, about one of the toughest jobs he had after he came back from Vietnam. Two years of my life. It also, it was it was just after there was a huge um, riot at Attica, upstate New York, in the early 70s. Uh, and among other issues, there was the, the lack of healthcare, or the lack of healthcare inside prisons. Mm -hmm. So what they did in Massachusetts is they got some federal grant money mm -hmm. and um, decided to uh, beef up the services inside prison by using former military medics. So that's what we did. And uh, I worked, I worked, I worked for two and a half years for the project itself. Um, Do you remember your first day? Absolutely. Scared the crap out of me. And I, I'm a, you know, I'm a combat veteran, but it's, it's, I walk, I, I remember walk, walking in and you, you, so you walk in and you have to sort of clear yourself at the front desk. Then you walk through this big door and you're into the sort of what they call a trap. So you walk in and in front of you is this other big door. And you walk into this, and the door behind you goes, bam, slams. And you look up and there's a guard up there with a the gun. You know, and you wait. And the other door's open. And then you go into another, I think, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong, there was yet another trap you had to go through. And then you walk through the prison yard. You have to remember, you can never wear denim to work of any kind, because it's what inmates wore. It'd be so confusing. And never run anywhere. If you run, they think something's up. Yeah, and it's going to, I don't they shoot me or not, but it, it would definitely cause, cause some commotion. Um, and uh, I walk in and I meet my, the inmate orderly. The inmate orderly was actually Albert DeSalvo. Do you know that name? He was the Boston Strangler back in the 60s. Well, they, they, everybody has jobs in prison. You have to do something. Most, li most guys make license plates, but if you can get a job in the infirmary, that's a better gig, you know, so. You said he was a strangler? He was a Boston, yeah, his guy was a notorious murderer. And you had to work with him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. And you I, knew that when you met him? Oh, I knew who he was when I met him. I could, when I looked at him, I knew who he was. Well, I said, well, it's nice to meet you. He says, he says are we going to get along? And I, I, I decided right then and there to say, so I, well, yes, we are getting along, but that's going to be up to you. And basically, you know, held him to it. Except, well, he, he threatened me once. And uh, oh. I jumped right back at him. And... Uh, Basically, I, you know, one word for me, you're out in population, and a lot of people don't like you in population. So uh, um, he was there, and then I met uh, substantial New England mob figures. Was, was, uh, I, I met the, the, old, the old guy I met, who was, he was doing time. He was, I think, was more part of actually the Providence mob than the Boston mob, but he was doing time in Massachusetts. I'm not sure about that. He walked into the... Uh, he walked into the infirmary like my second day there, and he you know, he didn't you know not a not a big man sort of he looked like any one of my uncles, <laughs> you know. uh, 
So I walk, he walk, but he walked up to me, he says, you knew, what's your name? So I said, Bill Mantone. 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 It's, it's not as uncommon a name as you would think. It's a fairly common name, actually. But Mantone, he said, he said um, okay, did you, did, your family, did, did you ever have family in the North End? I said, my father came from Italy. Of course I have family in the North End. You know? He says, turn to me, he says, so, are you, are you Joe's son or are you Matteo's son? I said, I'm Matteo's son. He says, oh. He says, I knew your father going, we played baseball together. He was a good guy. He worked really hard. Kept his mouth shut and was always good to his mother. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and after that, um, he, he would walk in every morning. He had to, he had to take a, a digoxin and you had to take his pulse before you gave it to him. Because if you take it in a, below a certain level, it could cause you to really slow down and you die. So um, I, he, he was, it was pretty much the same thing every morning. He'd walk in. I would say, good morning, Mr. Tamalio. How are you today? Good, Bill. How are you? I said, fine. I said, I'm running a little behind. I'll be right with you. He said, Billy, I'm doing triple life. Take your time. <laughs> so, and I would, uh, I would give him his dids and you'd have a little chat. And he had this big guy that always traveled with him. Huge guy. That he, I'm told, I don't know if it's for sure, I was told that he actually got himself into prison on purpose to, protect him. to, be, to be with the, to, to him. I, and I don't know if that's true or not, but, but he, he once day walked up to me, he's this big guy, just stone cold, flat, you know, no neck, just really flat, and walked up to me. He called me, I don't like being called Billy. They always call me Billy and I never complained. So, so, uh, 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 he said, watch me, he Billy, you know what? Just straight face. He said, I said, no, George, what? He says, you're a funny guy. You really crack me up. Just like that. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, no one gave me any shit. <laughs> Nobody gave me, gave me a hard time, you know. Oh, my God. So he survived. <laughs> it's cool that every, you know, rough place that he's going into, he's, you know, a healer Himself, or somebody right. yeah. who's helping out. Yeah. For sure. And he seems really good natured too, so. Yeah. I would imagine that people probably liked him wherever he went. Yeah. Yeah. Hungry. I'm still, I'm like shocked right shocked. now that he like met the Boston Strangler. I know. Crazy. In his first day That's at crazy. work. I know. How old was he? In he was 25 years old when he worked at the prison health project. Oh, wow. Uh, but remember how I said at the beginning that growing up wasn't necessarily easy and. Mm -hmm. I think at one point he said like his dad wasn't necessarily the nicest person, but also um, his dad, he, he knew early on that he wanted to be a musician, that he wanted to be in music, yet his dad did not support him mm -hmm. ever. Uh, his dad really wanted his sister to be the musician. What? Mm-hmm. Well, I wasn't, as I, as I said, my father pretty much wanted me to be him, and, that, and it was very clear that not, I was never going to come close to that. It was never going to happen. I didn't want to be like him. Yeah, so I made, so I, you know, but, so if, if I, I sort of got it very early on that if I wasn't going to, like, get through anything, I was going to just have to do it. Right. I, I think, I remember at one point in my probably early teens, it became very apparent that, you know, I wasn't going to be the person he wanted to be, and I had no intention of being. My father wanted me to go to, like, the Maritime, Merchant Marine Academy, the Maritime Academy, and be an officer. He was, he was a Merchant Marine officer as a young man, so. But I had no interest in doing any of those things. Uh, I wanted to be a musician. He did not want me to be a musician. Well, actually, 
Remember I told you about a while ago about Preston Sandiford, the guy that my sister's a ranger, vocal yeah. coach, who taught me stuff? Yeah. He once turned to my father and said, you know, you might have your money on the wrong horse. <laughs> what are you doing? He was furious. <laughs> furious, you know. He was angry. Uh, years later, we did a gig at back in the late '90s. We did a gig at Pat. Yeah, I mean, it might have been even the six-piece band. It was, but it was uh, my older sister, the singer, who was you know now old and not sing, hadn't sung for years. Um, she uh, did came she to Pat. Did she ever support you? <laughs> no. no. Yeah. I, in fact, she would get furious at me, like if I started playing the piano, she would don't do that. That's not you. Don't do that. You know. But. Uh, yeah, but she came to pass scenes one night, and I, we, we did the gig of pass scenes. She actually walked up to the after and said, Dad made a mistake. He's, you're the one he should have backed. So eventually, when Bill was late in his career, he's, his sister recognized his talent. But the dad, no, the dad never recognized anything. He was, till the end, against him being a musician, even when Bill was older. And he, his, Bill's dad only attended Bill's performance once in wow. his life so i mean i at this point i'm like so bill like your dad didn't support you in being a musician like you were not a good kid at school like how did you get energy or motivation to kind of pursue what you like doing this next clip gets at the core of bill's perseverance to play music and it all started when bill was a little kid my first clarinet teacher was charlie Massessian. uh charlie Played in bands in World War II in the Army. Um, he was uh, uh, he came here as part of the the, the Turkish geno genocide in Armenia. He was a refugee from that. So um, he came as a little kid. he came as a little kid as a refugee. Um, he played him on Boston for years, and it was well known. His wife also was a, a well-known bassist, vibe player, vibe player, who was a delight. Um, that's my first exposure to sitting around a room for the first, and I, I was I was didn't do much of anything, but I remember sitting in a round room with jazz musicians, and I just loved the culture. <laughs> I just, you know, um, so. Uh, but uh, he he unfortunately contracted back in the mid '50s. There was a, a big polio epidemic, and and he developed polio, and it left him quadriplegic. Yeah, I mean, when I, in fact, it's a long when I met him, but I first met him, he was in an iron lung, and they didn't, they didn't, they, they seriously thought he was gonna make it at all. And they said, okay, he's gonna make it, he'll never walk again, he never, well, he never really, he was able to walk at some point with crutches and braces and a lot of assistance, but he, he, um, he had, um, he had gross movement, in, in, in his right hand, and he had a little more final movement in his in his left hand, and so what he did for his clarinet students, he wanted to play duets with us, but you can't do it with clarinet because you need two hands to play clarinet, you know. Mm -hmm. So he learned how to play trumpet, and he would sit there next to me, with in his wheelchair, knees strapped together, have the trumpet pretty much bell resting there, and he would play duets. Because it was it was good. It, 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 the method book we used then really did that a lot. So um, you met him. After I met him. I, I went to elementary school with his son. Okay, and um, but when I first met him, uh, my uh, he was a patient at J Jamaica Plain VA, which I think to this day is known for its work with spinal cord injury. 
uh, and he, um, my oldest sister was a singer and she was doing this sort of benefit show at this hospital for, you know. So, and she, I'm from Wellington, who's from Wellington? And Charlie went, I'm from Wellington, so we went over to talk to him afterwards. And he said, I'm Charlie, you know, what's your name? Charlie Mississippi. I said, I, I know Ricky, so Ricky's my son. So, uh, and I didn't, I didn't know, I mean, I knew Ricky at school, we hung up together, but I didn't know his father was in Iron Monk in the hospital. So, but he came along, and then when I, he got better, I mean, I must, that must have been, I was younger than eight then, but he got better to a point where he was, he came home, was living at home, and I, he never charged me for a lesson. Wow. And, and, and what I would do is I would go help him, think there's, do you know what a Hoyer lift is? A Hoyer lift is, it's like this sort of hydraulic pump thing, and it's on a huge frame, but you can get it through doors and stuff, and it has basically, for a guy that's quadriplegic, you could put these pieces of cloth here and behind him to hook him to chains, and as if you had like a sling, like a chair sling, a ch sling chair. And you could pump it up, you can move it up, then you could wheel that lift or turn it wherever you need to turn it and put him someplace else. So I learned, I learned how to use a Hoyer lift when I was like eight. So, uh, and help with stuff like that, put his braces on. And also, how he made his living, he was, he was uh, an Armenian, so he, he dealt in Persian rugs. Uh -huh. There used to be a, um, a store in Boston, a department store called Raymond's years ago, and they were famous for their selection of rugs. Charlie, before he got sick, had that up. That was, that was his sort of day gig, you know. So, but he would put, and I would help, I would help him, uh, help him and his son kind of roll up rugs and carry them out and put right. them in corners. And that's what I did. I thought, he, yeah, wow. and I know it's the only difference between a Bashish and a Kazvin rug. Anyways. <laughs> Um, and that was, uh, and that was my first teacher. And he was just a, he was like, you know, I sort of feel like I, I, I sat the, the early days of Star Wars, Yoda. I think he was my clarinet teacher. Yeah. Uh, so he was this, just this man, just, um, kind and grateful and quite frankly, one of the most courageous people I've ever met. This man lost everything and didn't slow him down, you know. I mean, I, that's, that's where I caught it. I caught the bug. I didn't know. I wanted to play an instrument. I think I wanted to play guitar because, you know, you're, that was and that, even before. It was early rock and roll. I wanted to be like those guys, but I wanted to play in clarinet, and uh, it caught me. And I, I've always just loved to play clarinet. So, and then I moved on when when I got to like junior high school and to play saxophone because girls weren't talking to clarinet players. You were talking to saxophone players. So, uh, and that's what that what that was about. So that was my that was my. That was my first experience with music, yeah. and then. Um, when um, inspiring person. He really was. He really was. I mean, I still think of Charlie a lot. Um, he was really nice to me. He sort of understood that I was coming from a pretty rough home situation, so he was really nice to me. You know, really, you know, gave me a place to be, really a place to sort of, you know, feel wanted and safe and all that stuff. But. Um, so Charlie then, was important yeah. in his life. So how old was he when he was? learning how to use this lift and helping how old was bill was bill he was eight years old that's crazy yeah and this man not only taught him like to play music and kind of like he said i got the bug by yeah. learning to play with him but also like he gave him this space where he felt like support and you know, he had this strong man like physically he wasn't strong right. but in every other way he was and that's what he kind of needed at that time of his life so it was like the perfect mentor. 
His life should be a movie. I was just going to say that. I would seriously <laughs> really, yeah. watch a movie of I agree. Bill yeah, Nathan. <laughs> so Robin, Bill's wife, was with us at the time of the interview. And she's Bill's second wife. They first connected through music. And it took some time before they, ac they actually started dating. Um, so I love the story of how it all kind of happened. And they're just so funny together. So I had to include this clip of them sharing how they started dating. My first marriage was it had started to fall apart long, long before that. Mm. And uh, it, it fell apart. But I didn't steal him from No, no, I had nothing. This <laughs> might, no, the marriage, like in, fa in, fa in, fact, in fact, Rob and I did not start seeing each other about a year and a half after I, I actually oh, I left. You know, we, okay. we weren't. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you have to say, well, um, well, people, a lot of people thought that, but, you know, it, thought so. yeah, oh, because you knew each other. We, we, knew, right? we knew each other, and yeah, and, and, and we, we went, and, and then after, after that, we, we started, we, we went on, on a number of non dates. Yeah. They weren't dates. Yeah. We were going to hear music together. They weren't, that was, way, it wasn't, it way. wasn't a date. So, <laughs> and I don't, and I don't want to hear it anymore. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and the, and also at the same time, a friend of ours, a uh, wonderful jazz pianist. So I started getting together with him and a bass player and uh, a drummer and uh, on Saturday mornings because I wanted to play jazz because I was playing in this blues band, get, Gets Born. So one day we're sitting around and this Saturday morning, say, you know, we, we, we had a vocalist because backing up a vocalist is different than just playing. Yeah. It's a whole different, yeah. So I said, well, I know a vocalist. So I, I asked Robin to start to come over and... That's at that point, and then I so started so, uh, coming on Saturdays and singing with them, and it was great. It was so much fun. And and, uh, and then one one Saturday, we were we went went to a deli after after playing music. I was sitting around. Robin said, "Well, you know, I sort of made this lunch date through this this sort of dating." I've this, been single a long yeah. time, and I was getting tired. And they had a service called lunch dates where. You kind of met somebody over lunch, so it wasn't quite as formal as dinner. Or, right. You, know, and you could cut it up after. Yeah. Mm. So I, I, I contacted them. I hadn't set anything up yet, but I knew they were, they were going to call me back. And, and they had called me back. And, and, and then after we were practicing, so I already had a crush on Bill. And then after we were practicing, I thought, I don't want to do this. And I don't know if anything's going to happen between the two of us, but I don't want to do that. Yeah. So I brought it up during lunch. I said, yeah, I need to call them back, but I'm kind of embarrassed to do so. Bill says, I'll, call. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll call. I don't care. <laughs> I'll do it. So I got on the phone with the guy. I said, well, well, can you tell me why? I said, because she's not coming. <laughs> well, can you? I need to know why. I said, I said, she's not coming, and I might show up, and you wouldn't like that. <laughs> and you were not dating him. Nope. But he started getting in, yeah. involved. Yeah, he didn't want that's me dating. Lovely. Oh, that's lovely. Oh. Yeah. Are you saying that uh -huh. I had what? other motives? What? <laughs> so, so, uh, so, and then we went out. And we again, we walked a bunch of time, but you hear music together, and you know, she, she's this band to that band, you know, and. Um, and then one time I, I decided to myself, you know, I'm going to take Rod on a date. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so so uh, it, it was a big deal because so I called her up and I said, we're going. It's, oh, okay. I said, nope, this is a date. I'm paying for dinner. I'm taking her up for dinner. This is, you know. So um, you want to tell the rest of this? Because you do it better than I do. So <laughs> So we arranged to meet at a restaurant on, on Com Ave. 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 Com Ave.
So I'm driving there, I'm looking for a place to park, and I pass the restaurant. There's Bill standing in front of the restaurant with this huge bouquet of red roses in his hand. <laughs> and I got so excited. I couldn't tell you, he likes me. He likes me too. Oh my gosh, he really likes me. <laughs> it wasn't an accident. <laughs> quick, get myself together, find a place to park, get over to the restaurant before he changes his mind. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and that was our first real date. That was date. our first real date. Yeah. And then. So that was Bill Montone and his wife Robin. So that's I love how them. Yeah, <laughs> they're just so much fun. When do they play at Chianti's? They play every last Sunday of the month. Every last Sunday of the month. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. Yeah. So if you want to listen to Bill and Robin, you have to go to the last Sunday of the month at Chianti's, the Italian restaurant in Cabot Street, Beverly, mm-hmm. which is pretty nice. We have been there. Mm-hmm. Great ice cream, great food, great service. Yeah, they have a patio. And I love a patio. Yeah, that's true. I love them. All right, somebody make a movie now. Yes. Go. Yes. One, two, three. Writers, get to work. But anyways. Oh, thank you, Belle. Yeah. Thanks, amazing Bill. story. Yay. And before we go, here's one of the songs that um, Bill and Robin played at their house. Just when every hope I had was gone, I might have known that you would come along. Can't believe I ever doubted you My old friend the blues A little lonely night Some nameless town If sleep don't take me first You come around I know I can't always count on you My old friend Lovers leave and friends just let you down. You're the only sure thing that I've found. No matter what I do, I'll never lose. My old friend of blues. If you like this episode or want to learn more about the neighbors living around you, please subscribe. We believe everyone is interesting and everyone has good stories to share. If you live or work in Beverly, please reach out to us at beverlytalks.com to schedule an interview. All unedited interviews will be permanently stored at the public library and your friends and family members will be able to access them anytime in the future. And the music in this podcast was brought to you thanks to freesound.org. More details on the music credits will appear in our website. Bye!